Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 138, The Ensurfment of the Russian Peasant. Last time, we covered a brief history of the country of Belarus. And now I want to cover something, and I'm doing this in consecutive weeks because the next podcast I'm going to do is about the Crimean War. And I think it's a very important topic, obviously, in lieu of what's going on in the Ukraine, in Russia, the world. And I think that the American public is grossly misunderstanding what's going on. And even worse, I think our government and the media, both liberal and conservative sides, are getting it all wrong. And I want to cover the Crimean War from the 1850s, but in a modern context of what's going on here. So I wanted to get to this one. And this episode is very near and dear to my heart because I believe it's one of the saddest moments of Russian history. And I want to cover this you know, the ensurfment of the Russian peasant. Now, the ensurfment of these peasants is, without a doubt, the saddest part of the history of the country, lasting from 1450 to, this is a different date that you're going to hear most of the time, to 1906. It is not surprising that there were thousands of revolts in Russia, partly because of it, with the big one occurring, of course, in 1917. While not a peasant revolt, it was this deep sense of, you know, sadness in the country, I think, and wanting to get out of this horrible time. And it had just occurred, and the, the end of it had just, you know, finished. So let's get into it. The tragedy of the life of a serf cannot be downplayed. Life in the cold environs of Russia was harsh to begin with, but to have no control over your life be beholden to a possibly cruel owner, and knowing that your children would suffer the same fate must have been horrendous. In America, we had our slavery issue, importing poor souls from Africa. In Russia, we have the ensurfment of their own people. How did an institution like serfdom come to be? How could the Russian people allow themselves to be enslaved? The answer that I found while doing the research here was stunning, astonishing, and somewhat shameful. The institution that first led the peasants of Russia into enslavement was none other than the Russian Orthodox Church. I know that some of you listening today are members of the church, as I am, so you may be appalled or in a state of disbelief. But before I get into the reason why the church was responsible for the initial phase of the ensurfment of the Russian peasant, let's say, lay some groundwork here. Slavery was not an unheard of thing in old Russia. They imported slaves or gave slaves to landowners after wars as kind of payment for service. And this had been going on around the world. I mean, the Romans did it, the Greeks did it, the Persians and many other peoples. Uh, approximately 10% of the Russian population, as of 1450, were actual slaves, not serfs, real slaves. Now, there's some that I've seen out there who believe that serfdom began before 1450, but the evidence is scant, and it is likely they were confusing slavery with serfdom, which has subtle but definitive differences. We also have to accept that the land of the Oka-Volga region where the Russian population was concentrated in, was a poor agricultural region. Arable soil was at best only three inches deep. 
There was no way that this land could support any sort of densely populated cities. At best, it could support a group of hunter-gatherers with some agricultural trimmings to the side. Fishing and hunting was the way to support oneself and their family, especially in the winter time, which was, of course, a very long time in Russia. But Russia was changing and growing. They were beginning to throw off the Mongol yoke and to assert themselves as a global power. They were expanding, and with this growth, peasants began to move to more and more fertile lands east, some over the Urals, towards the rich hunting grounds of Siberia as well. This was causing a depopulation in the older part of Russia, something that was beginning to worry the czars and the landowners. Well, prior to the civil war over the Moscow throne in 1425 to 1453, which followed the death of Grand Prince Vasily I on February 27th of 1425, the Russian population for the most part was free. They were able to move anywhere they wished. Only slaves were bound to their masters. Aside from the major cities, population density was low, so the slash-and-burn agricultural system was viable and in common use, and also is very susceptible to famine. And if you remember the podcast on the Russian rulers' side, there was a number of famines that went on, because if you had you know, poor weather or you had a shorter growing season, we could have some really bad times, and many of them did occur. What the agricultural peasant would do is cultivate the land for about three years and then move on, because that just pretty much took all the nutrients out of the soil. They could do this without hindrance because of the vastness of the country. Land ownership, therefore, was really unimportant, as the quality of the soil, as I've mentioned, was so poor that it couldn't sustain itself for very long. Now, we had taxes, and then fees were collected from the peasants, and the spoils of war from looting were the main sources of revenue for the government. They didn't have huge needs at that time. and Therefore, there was no need to press the people and indenture them yet. Here is where the monasteries and the Russian Orthodox Church come into the picture. They were forced to move away from the cities and towns around the year 1350 because of an outbreak of the plague. To sustain themselves, they went into landowning and agricultural business growing and then selling grain. They needed to recruit peasants because they didn't have enough monks involved and did so by offering them lower taxes, which they were given to by the government. Uh, and then they gave small loans to get the seed needed to begin planting and to kind of entice the peasants to come in. Over time, they realized that they were having a hard time getting the loans repaid. The monasteries then petitioned the government to forbid any indebted peasant from moving away from the land, except on November 26th, known as St. George's or Yuri's Day, the traditional end of the agricultural year. The monasteries believed that if the peasant was forced to stay throughout the growing year, they would stand a better chance of getting their loans paid. The rule was that the peasant could only move one week before or one week after Yuri's day, and only if they repaid the loans. There was only a few monasteries here, and you know, relatively few peasants were involved with this. But in my humble opinion, this innocent beginning laid the groundwork for the ensurfment of the peasants, because for totally unknown or undocumented reasons, the Sudebnik or Law Code of 1497 
under Ivan III, also known as Ivan the Great, extended the St. George's Day moving law to all peasants who were working the land for someone. The ruling spread like wildflower, fly, wildflower throughout all of Muscovy's territories. And aside here, do you know why St. George's Day would be a good day for the peasant to move to a different place? Well, typically, the temperature would be below freezing, but the heavy snows would not have come yet, so the ground would be frozen and hard, which made it easier to travel on. During the spring, the ground is typically muddy, and in the deep winter, the snows would slow down travel. Of course, in the summer, we have all the cultivation and agriculture. You wouldn't want anyone moving then. Late November represented the ideal time to travel in medieval Russia. In the Sudebnik of 1550, the rules were further stiffened. They also introduced the three-field system of agriculture, whereby the fields used were rotated each year, lengthening the number of years the land was tenable and locking the peasant down even further. Then came the period of Ivan the Terrible's years of the Oprichnina terror, which caused some regions to lose 85% of their population, mostly due to the peasants fleeing in fear. During this period, we also have another great expansion of the Russian land holdings, as the Khanates of Kazan and Astrakhan were conquered and the lands were opened up. Now, these were much better lands for cultivating agriculture. Now, remember when I did the Revolt series and how a large number of peasants surged into the newly conquered areas over the years, and how the Cossacks were unwilling to help the government of Russia to return them to their owners? Well, it is here where the influx began. To reduce the power of the boyars, Ivan gave his supporters, the landed middle class, more control over their peasants and allowed them to, quote, collect as much rent in one year as formerly they had collected in ten. Ivan also ordered that peasants are, quote, to obey their lords in everything. The serf-slash-peasant was now turning into a slave. Because of the horrible conditions, and with Russia expanding, many serfs left their estates and masters whenever they could. The law at the time was that their masters had a five-year span to recover their property, the serf. Wealthy landowners with vast estates would sometimes hide serfs who ran away from smaller estates until the five-year period was up. New laws began to be passed restricting the serfs' rights, like the one in 1550, that levied a tax on any peasant who refused to bring in their master's harvest from the fields. The government also imposed harsh penalties on anyone who hid a runaway serf. Of course, if a wealthy owner was caught doing this, the old system of bribery would come into play so they wouldn't be published. If you think that bribery is a thing of modern-day Russia, think the Sochi Olympics costing $50 billion, think again. It's deeply ingrained into the society to cover up some of the real problems they faced over the centuries. Many peasants used the St. George's Day opening to flee their masters, so a number of the landowners petitioned the government to annul the day. The Tsar not really wanting to do that because they kind of feel that they knew it was wrong. They grudgingly made a proclamation to that effect, but made it clear that this was only a temporary situation, calling them the, quote, forbidden ears. 
At first, this was given to only a select group of landowners who had lost a large number of serfs, but in 1592, it was applied to all of the peasants. Why this was done, again, is a mystery of history, as no reason is out there. We don't know why they did this. Also, the temporariness of the, quote, forbidden years is a farce, as it was continued until 1906, 314 years in total. Kind of guess the word for temporary has a different meaning uh, in Russian to the czars than it does to the common person. The serfs used to joke amongst themselves that a return to St. George's Day would be tantamount to emancipation. Well, after the death of Ivan's son Fyodor and Boris Gudunov's reign, we see Russia plunged into the time of troubles. Nothing of great matter occurred during this time in as regards to ensurfment, except for Vasily Shuisky's near equation of serfdom with slavery in 1607 via a comment he made. But that really had no lasting effect as he was quickly deposed. If anything, the time of troubles allowed many serfs to find their way to leave their masters and head for the Urals, Kazan, or Astrakhan. There was nobody to hold them back. They had the private armies for the large landowners, and many of the small ones just couldn't afford to keep their serfs in. After the end of the time of troubles and the Smolensk War of 1632-34, to the middle-class landowners sensed that the Romanov Tsar Michael was weak and needed their help to support his regime, so they pressed the monarch to repeal the Statue of Libertations for the recovery of fugitive serfs. Simultaneously, laws were put into place compelling free peasants to remain in the towns they lived in without freedom of movement. This petition was asked for by the very townspeople themselves who would be restricted by this law. Now, you must be asking yourself, why would they do this to themselves? Well, the answer is quite simple and somewhat logical. Towns were taxed based on a set amount, and each household had to pay their share. If one family decided to move away, the burden of paying the taxes they would have to come up with would be shouldered by the remaining families. The remaining families also shouldered the additional burden of sending more of their family members into compulsory military service to make up from the loss of the family that had moved. So you see, they were protecting themselves so they wouldn't let anyone move. Now in 1641, the Statute of Limitations was raised to nine years. In 1945, the statute would be repealed once a census was taken. Because of the corruption of the man who essentially ran the country at the time, Boris Morozov, a census was taken, but no actions were taken as Morozov and his band of thieves, you might call, was actively recruiting serfs to leave their masters and join him. But the populace caught wind and riots ensued and Morozov and his corrupt accomplices were overturned, thrown out, and Tsar Alexis created the Law Code of 1649, which basically tied the serf to the land of their forebearers forever. Now, that didn't mean that they couldn't run away. I mean, fugitives still presented a problem, especially those who married after running away. Think of this. Say a man from one manor married a woman from another. They had run away and were captured. Now, who would they go to? 
Well, since the church would not allow the married couples to be split up, it depended on where they were married. If they married on the estate of one of their owners, then they would stay there with compensation of one serf being given to the estate that lost theirs. If they went on neutral ground, though, lots would be cast to see where the couple would go to with the loser being compensated. Still, the problem with runaways going to other estates did not stop here. In 1649, the government stated that if a landowner was found to have a runaway on his property, he would lose that serf plus another one. That did nothing. Then they upped it to two serfs. Again, no effect. When the ante was up to the loss of four serfs for every runaway found, then the problem began to abate as then the estate holders would actively turn away anyone wanting to come on illegally. Peter the Great, well, he decided that he would institute a death penalty for any landowner that was found with a runaway on his estate, but we have no records of anyone ever being executed for that crime. At the dawn of the 1700s, the nobility wanted to be allowed to buy and sell serfs in an open market, which would be the total conversion of the serf into a slave. There is an open debate amongst historians as to whether this type of market really existed in the open in Russia. From what I've seen, this was not a very public issue and was likely done mostly behind closed doors. When the sole tax of 1719 was introduced, the landowner was now responsible to pay the tax for each of his serfs. This gave, in effect, more control over the serfs than ever before, as the landowner now had a financial stake in a serf. When the tax began to be collected in 1724, as I find kind of interesting, you know, you pass a law, it takes five years before they can start doing it. Remember how big Russia is, and for somebody to start it in St. Petersburg, and then, you know, you can't get on your cell phone and go, hello, Irkutsk, uh, soul tax being collected. It took five years for them to get things going before they can get the people in to collect these taxes and even tell people that this tax was coming. Well, by this time, peasants were now required to have a pass before they could travel anywhere, signed by their owners. Because of this, serfs are now a fully marketable commodity. Think of it. You have a sole tax on an individual. You have something on that person with a pass. You now have a way to trade this person. It makes it much easier. Now, if a landowner was unable to pay the sole tax, he might be forced to sell them or to mortgage them, borrow money on them to pay the tax. Numerous laws were passed to ban the public sale of serfs because the czars viewed this with disdain, but nothing was ever done to prevent private sales. Now, laws were passed, going back to Boris Gudunov and Empress Anna, forcing first slave owners, then serf holders, to feed their subjects. And before that, they didn't have to take care of them. But the laws came out and said, no, no, no. They're still Russian people. We have to, you have to take care of them in some manner. In 1760, serfs could be banished to Siberia for whatever reason if they disobeyed their masters. Now, this was typically done to the younger serfs to keep them subjugated, because think of it, teenagers, young people, they're your rebels. The older ones, they're tired. They're not going to move. It's the young guys. You don't listen. We're sending you to Siberia. And let me tell you, Sending to Siberia is like it was during the gulags of the Soviet era. Not a nice place to go. Then 
the depths of the subjugation occurred, which has been seen as a day of tragedy in Russian history, the day when St. Peter, Tsar Peter III abolished all service requirements for estate owners. They no longer had any rules governing the way they treated their serfs or slaves. They could now use any method to supervise or, in many cases, abuse them. Now, despite what we've heard about the enlightened status of Catherine the Great, she signed a law in 1767 that forbade any serf from filing a petition against their owners. And you'll find out a little bit more why this was so harsh. During her reign, in which she oftentimes railed against serfdom in her letters to you know, her friends like Voltaire, she gave away 800,000 state serfs to private estate owners. This was an absolute tragedy. Estate serfs were very oftentimes really well treated in comparison to their privately held brethren. The year of 1796 now is considered the zenith of serfdom. Now, in doing my research, I don't look at one side. I don't look at one piece of material, and I'm going to do a podcast in between the Crimean War series about how I do the research and how I put on this podcast. When we look at uh, the actions of Peter III and Catherine the Great, there's some differences in, in opinion and things that they see here. They actually uh, view their edicts of Peter the Great, uh, rather Peter the Third and Catherine the Great, being positive steps toward freeing the serfs. For some, the abolition of compulsory noble state service in some way laid the groundwork for the justification and rationale to end serfdom. Now, this position was put forth by David Moon in his book, The Abolition of Serfdom in Russia, and Gregory Fries in his work, Russia, a History. While their arguments are you know, fascinating and quite interesting, I just had such a hard time with their way of thinking. I mean, it, it just made very little sense that by uh, you know, abolishing compulsory noblemen's state service, this somehow said, oh, peasants, we're going to do this for you, you know, eventually. It really didn't have a lot of meat to it. They also make the case for Catherine II with her measures that would give the state the ability to prosecute estate owners for the cruel treatment of their wards. Now, remember when I said in 1767 she forbade any serf from filing a petition against their owners? Well, this way of thinking makes little sense as she laid down an edict which did not allow for the serf to lodge a complaint well, who was the voice of the serf if not themselves? So this was an empty edict, and I think it was only made to uh, help her feel better about herself. And because you know she's, I think she didn't believe in serfdom, but had no way to get around it intellectually. Now, one thing that Peter the Third did that was positive was the secularization of the church peasants to the state, morally. I have a real problem thinking that the church should hold serfs in a slave-like environment. I mean, how can you rationalize that? Because they weren't all treated very well. But in the day, the church made their justifications in their own mind and seemed to rationalize their stance. Then we come up to Emperor Paul. Now, for all his shortcomings, he was very sympathetic to the poor serf. And also, we have to think, he really hated his mother, so he wanted to reverse everything that she did. So he passed a law in 1797 to forbid owners to force their serfs to work on Sundays. 
Well, this meant well with the Russian Orthodox Church, obviously. He also suggested that serfs only be compelled to work for their owners three days a week and three days for themselves. He really did this to undo all that his hated mother had put into place. It is therefore not surprising that Paul was assassinated before he could put these and many other planned reforms, other things that he wanted to do. And many historians believe that Paul would have gone down in history as the great emancipator instead of Alexander II. After Paul's assassination and murder, Alexander I was deeply concerned about the issue of emancipation. But along came this guy named Napoleon, which derailed it for a while, and then Alexander entered this mystic period of his life, culminating in a likely conversion into the monk Fyodor Kuzmich. Nicholas I, after suppressing the Decemberist revolt in 1725, appointed ten commissions, and this is ten separate commissions, to discuss the emancipation of the serfs, but did nothing. After he died, his son Alexander II, viewing the crushing defeat in the Crimean War as a sign from God that serfdom had to end, proclaimed the emancipation of the serfs in 1861. But it really was a fake freedom, as what it really did was change them from a slave-like dependence on their masters to a return to real serfdom status. They were still bound to their communes. Only the state serfs were really freed, as the privately held ones needed to pay for their freedom, and the government was both unwilling and financially unable to compensate the private estate holders. It was only in 1906, 108 years ago, when the government of Nicholas II, under intense pressure, released the serf from the control of the communes and their masters, canceled the redemption dues, and abolished the use of corporal punishment on any peasant. For the first time in 456 years, all peasants were freed, ending one of the most disgraceful episodes of Russian history. And this was part of the crumbling of the support for Nicholas by the nobility. Remember how we talked about that in the uh, episodes about Rasputin? Nicholas was undermining the nobility. They weren't going to prop him up. The Bolsheviks would not have come into power had the nobility backed him. And this is one of the reasons why they didn't, and why the chatter in the background against Nicholas II. I'd say that he's a very was a very inept czar, and I've you know, put him down as one of the worst czars. There were some things that the man cared about. You know, he really did care about the Russian people, but I think he was so misplaced in his policies, he didn't understand. And the nobility at that point was so corrupt that they undermined the entire society. Now, you look back at serfdom, and is there any wonder why there were so many rebellions with the serfs and everyday peasants willing to die to try to overthrow the system, and they knew they weren't going to you know, succeed? Remember the revolts that I talked about of Ivan Bolotnikov, Stenka Razin, Kondraty Bulavin, and Yemelyan Pugachev? Well, they were all Cossack-led rebellions, not aimed at serfdom, but the serfs willingly and happily became Cossacks to leave this horrible life. 
Lest you think there were only major rebellions. Think again. Hundreds and hundreds, thousands of revolts and outbreaks of violence occurred after the Pugachev Rebellion. There was never a quiet moment in all of Russia until the emancipation in 1906. But then again, we did have the Russian Revolution shortly thereafter. Is there any wonder why there was a vicious retaliation against the nobility occurring during and after the Russian Civil War? Can you question why? One has to remember that the real end of serfdom as an institution happened less than two decades before then. Memories of the abuse and debasement were still fresh in many of the former peasants' minds. The church's prestige also suffered, as many remembered that they were large serf holders for hundreds of years, and it was in their monasteries that the whole debasing process of ensurfment began. All in all, serfdom in Russia debased not only the serfs, but the entirety of Russian society. Now, there's a few other facts that you should know about serfdom. First off, there were no serfs in the Urals or Siberia. They became kind of what you might call serf-free regions. Many escaped serfs and those who were banished went to Siberia or the Urals, but the issue was really that neither area was really prime agricultural lands. Serfdom was coming apart before Alexander II sent down the edict to emancipate them. Many had large mortgages on their heads, about 50% by 1859. The noble estates were falling apart. Primogenitor, which was handing it down from father to son, it was failing, and the estates were headed toward state ownership due to the lack of male heirs, kind of like the appanage failure in Kievian Rus. It was failing. It was falling apart. There was also fundamental differences between the percentages of serfs on large versus small estates in 1700 versus 1861, about a century and a half here. In 1700, 26% of the estates had 500 plus serfs, with 41% having between 1 and 100. By 1861, and remember that all these serfs being hidden and things like that, it was reversed, with 42% of all serfs being held in estates with more than 500, and only 20% in estates with 1 to 100. By the middle of the 19th century, almost, and this is a staggering amount, 38% of the entire population of Russia, 38% of the entire population were serfs. This number comes out to 23.1 million people out of a total population of 62.5 million Russians. I think we have to sit here for a sec. And think of those numbers. I, I, I just, you know, I can't fathom it. You know, in, in the South, slavery in the United States never neared this kind of number, which doesn't give any justification to it. But 38% of your own people are enslaved? I, 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 this number still bothers me to this day, and I've read this over and over over the past week of research on this. And I'm saddened. It really saddens me. Now, in conclusion, 
The ensurfment of the Russian peasants started innocently, I really believe this, innocently with the monasteries of the Russian Orthodox Church. And I may have been a little heavy-handed on them here. But it was quite innocent. And it spiraled downward until a large portion of the Russian people were trapped into this horribly sad state of life. It is something that will and should haunt the Russian people for a long, long time. Join me next time when I cover another very important time in Russian history with extremely important correlations to the events in the world regarding the Ukraine. I think you're going to really enjoy next week's podcast when we talk about Crimea, the Ukraine, Russia, the relationships, the history of this, and why this came about. So I'm going to start next time with a multi-part series covering the Crimean War with a break in the middle explaining how I put on this podcast after all these years. Because frankly, in a month, I will have been doing this for four years. So I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. This week, I'd like to ask my listeners to head over to iTunes. Just get a couple minutes and do this for me. Rate the podcast. If you don't like it and you keep on listening to it after all this time, that's okay. You can say something if you really like it. I'd appreciate a good review. Either way, it'll really help to get more people to find us and learn more about the amazing history of Russia. Don't forget to join us on Facebook at the Russian Rulers History Podcast page where you can ask a question, leave a message, make a suggestion, or just post something. You know, we got these pictures that readers have been posting, and, and just it's a fantastic group. Thank you so much for all of you who've joined. So now, as always, Das Vidanya is Pasivo Bolshoya.